Welcome to the Pain Podcast, presented by La Pub Scientifique. We are thrilled to bring you a platform that unites clinicians, researchers, and pain advocates in sharing a pursuit, understanding pain. In this series of podcasts, we aim to bridge the gap between scientific knowledge and practical applications in the field of pain. Our episodes will feature insightful discussions with leading experts, exploring the latest research findings, innovative treatments, and emerging trends in the realm of pain. Whether you are a healthcare professional seeking evidence-based practices, a researcher diving into the depths of the pain mechanisms, or a dedicated advocate striving to improve the lives of individuals in pain, you are welcome. Check out our website, get confident and competent in treating pain. Start today. Hello and welcome to the pain podcast, Le Pub Scientifique. My name is Bart van Buchem. I'm a pain specialist physiotherapist, and we have an exciting guest here, um, Jonas Salmon, Dr. Jonas Salmon, um, from the University of uh, Leuven, um, also hustled, I think, um, yep. but that's probably something you can uh, explain yourself. Um, as a professor, postdoctoral research fellow um, in the Department of Psychology, and um, health psychology in particular. Um, and I know you from your work, you've done on pain conditioning models and um, fear avoidance. And that's where we're going to try to run this conversation about. I think for many, many people listening, um, pain conditioning or fear avoidance seem to be something that has been established by Johan Vlyen, Professor Johan Vlyen in a couple of years ago. And um, obviously, the work has moved on, right? So uh, thank you for joining, uh, Jonas. Uh, it's good to have you. Thank you, Bart, for having me. It's a, it's an honor to to yeah to be able to share some of my thoughts and my experience with the field. Absolutely. So so could you um, introduce yourself as much as we need to know about you? Um, yeah, I um, I am an uh, experimental psychologist and a cognitive. I, uh, I I think my research combines experimental psychology with cognitive psychology. So what that means is that we we try to build experimental models of things that happen in real life, like how people develop uh, pain and and how that develops into chronic pain. Um, that we try to model in the laboratory using experimental paradigms. And then using a wide range of tools, I try to disentangle what are like the role of emotions, what is the role of cognitions, what is how does perception changes, maybe how does memory play a role. And so my my research is kind of at the interplay between like learning mechanisms, uh, like emotions, and then especially fear uh, is particularly relevant for pain. And then like how that influences not only pain perception itself, but also our perception of uh, bodily related sensations so, so that goes beyond pain i reckon yes 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 yeah 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 oh. so you consider depression anxiety as part of your your field but uh, i think it's definitely part of the field it's not part of my research so my research i would say i focus for instance also on how does getting afraid of of uh like for instance you talked already about the fear avoidance model where the idea is that eh, movements become associated with pain and you develop a fear of them and this model focuses a lot on how that influences your future behaviors. That is, mm. which movements do you decide to do? Which actions do you decide to avoid? My mm. research 
kind of starts focusing on what are the perceptual consequences if such a thing happened. That is, how does, for instance, getting afraid of a certain movement influences our perceptions, our perception of sensations during that movement? Uh, or how does fear learning influences our perception of uh, which otherwise would be benign bodily sensations? Like, let's say you, you ate something, then you get a lot of uh, bowel movement going on. And for most people, we, we sometimes feel these sensations, but these are non-threatening and then that's fine. But for instance, for people with functional gastrointestinal disorders, these, these, these sensations might be, uh, develop a threatening nature. And as a consequence, their perception might change. And, and they, people, people start perceiving these as more intense. And that actually may lead to the... Uh, the development of more symptoms or the qualification of symptoms or complaints. So, so that, that, that's quite a bit already. So, so let's see if we can start with some of the basics because yeah. uh, since um, fear and anxiety has been part of, let's say, the, the a potential part of explaining why people are still in pain, even mm -hmm. though the tissue damage may has been gone or other factors kick in. So um, could you elaborate a bit on, on the history of the understanding? Where does this idea come from where fear avoidance or pain avoidance, um, anxiety comes across the pain mm -hmm. perceptions? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so I think it, it, it kind of started with... with uh, Initially, you had this very uh, bottom-up idea of, of pain and that it's very sensory-driven. And then people became aware of like, okay, there's more aspects to a perception than just sensory input, mm -hmm. including how pe what people expect, but also how our different emotional states may influence how we perceive or interpret, for instance, a noxious input. Um, and then uh, the, the focus kind of shifted towards, I think, fear and, 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 and anxiety, given that you see a high comorbidity uh, often also between chronic pain and anxiety disorders. And that I think got really into uh, like an acceleration with then like, yeah, the work of Johan Vlaien that started emphasizing that actually this anxiety provides uh, clinicians with new tools in their battle to treat or alleviate uh, chronic pain. And so rather than just being uh, left with uh, either like um, um, pharmacological treatments, now suddenly there opened up a new scala of treatments where the idea was that people, because pain is such a, a potent stimulus and it's so important for the well-being of the, um, uh, the organism, it's 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 capable of triggering very strong fear responses, and even in that manner, that the ex, uh, a single experience of profound or or extreme pain can be sufficient to lead to long long lasting pain or fear for a given um, uh, action or stimulus that caused that pain, and that is a very adaptive mechanism mm. because it allows us to prevent future harm. Yeah? That is, we allow to learn. What is in the world around us threatening or dangerous for our well-being, and and hence a logic step would be to get afraid of those things to trigger avoidance that we avoid these situations. Yes, so so that will be that that's a quite big claim as uh, uh, where we're learning. Sorry, pain is a has been part of a learning mechanism. Yeah, is that correct? So so there will there are probably different views um, of how this would relate. 
um, how is that? How is the how did it evolve over time so, since um, Johan Vlein's paper? And I think that should be in the late nineties, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm correct, of early two thousand. Um, so is, um, is this idea still like as it was, or is it is it? I reckon it would have been evolved. Um, and maybe I think it. it yeah. I think there are multiple arguments on why I think this idea is still very relevant today. I think one of the biggest advantages is that inspired by this fear avoidant model became the idea that like if fears are so central to like problematic behaviors that contribute to pain chronification, then if we start targeting these fears, then we might uh, improve people's uh, yeah uh, complaints. And that's very well the case. You see that uh, like the idea of or using exposure therapy. So that's actually uh, a therapy where people, for instance, who got afraid of certain movements are actually you're you're exposed in a in a gradual and in a safe context to the things you fear to actually to get over your fears and to 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 yeah um yeah to 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 rule out or or extinguish the fear you could say um and given that these these uh, treatments are so effective i think that's already a very good testimony to the importance of that on the one hand pain is a very potent learning signal for fear and that these fears remain relevant throughout the chronification of, of pain and, and that they, they provide a, an important tool or handle for clinicians to work on. Um, on the more theoretical level in, in or, or more in the science world, there have been a lot of debates on like to which extent these learning mechanisms can really explain that something that is not painful becomes painful or, or there have been debates on, yeah, is, what is pain? Is it a... Uh, in the so in the context of conditioning um to explain this idea let's take a step back first so what is actually a typical conditioning or associative learning uh paradigm that is the idea that you form associations between stimuli and things mm -hmm. they predict so for instance a typical conditioning experiment would be you see the picture of a dog and then you get a painful stimulus that can be an electrical stimulus, a heat one, or even in real life, the dog really attacks you and bites you. So then the bite is the pain one and you learn to associate the dog with the pain. And this with repeated pairings or even in one single trial can be sufficient to, to start to respond fearful when you just see the dog without being actually bitten. Okay, yeah. And so... Uh, in that context, you, you, you uh, like the pain is considered this unconditioned stimulus, which is that this is a stimulus that leads to a response anyway. While the dog initially did not lead to any response and only starts eliciting a fear response once being paired to pain. So then you kind of get a conditioned response. And so there has been a bit of a debate on like what is the... A semantic and theoretical value of pain is it uh, is it only a us can it also be a conditioned response is it so there have been some attempts on that um so yeah but i think what what has or at least what i believe has changed a lot is that the fear avoidance model induced a lot of focus on the importance of not only pain itself but like also behaviors how people behave that is that is it that it is important to keep moving to to not start avoiding and lock, locking yourself up at home and avoiding social activities and and going out to the gym or sporting or whatever because you you're afraid that that you will experience pain 
but it, it failed to explain exactly how does it come that when we are in a state of fear, how come that we also fear more pain, feel more pain then? How come we, like, what is the link between how we perceive the input from our body and our emotional states? And I think that has evolved a lot since uh, the work by Johan in the 90s on, like, the fear avoidance model in the, in the 20s. Yeah, so, so so how would that as as should we see it as a as a part of the puzzle where fear avoidance or maybe in some people is are more likely to develop as pain state that has been driven by an anxiety or a fearful let's say conditioning modeling um, than others yeah i think it is an, an important aspect of the puzzle that we uh, in all honesty, we still don't totally grasp. Uh, I think we're, we're only starting to get an ID, but there we we are increasingly becoming aware that, like on the one hand, that how the brain processes sensory input, that this is a very plastic and malleable process, and that a lot of learning mechanisms are capable at changing even at the lowest sensory levels how sensory input is processed. So that I think is an important aspect because it might inspire new treatments or provide new tools or yeah, offers different options of, of working on um, yeah, the treatment of pain. So for instance, being aware that like these like when bodily sensations become associated with pain, they not only start to elicit fear, but they also change. The, the, the way our sensory system interpret this information. Eh? So our brain doesn't read just in sensory input from the senses, but it actually is kind of an inferential mechanism. So that, that means it also uses expectations and past experiences and kind of combines these sources of information to get kind of make a weighted prediction of what is the most likely thing that happened because our brain doesn't know what really happened because it has no access to the real, uh, to the reality. If you know this, then then this opens also again new new ways of, of therapies. So on the one hand, pain can emerge because this this system where it integrates sensory input with expectations is relying way too much on on expectations. That is, if I am expecting pain, I will get pain. And very famous examples of these are the placebo and the nocebo. Like placebo is the opposite, where you say like I expect that something will make me better, and it effectively does it. Yeah. And there has been a lot of research, but on the other hand, this research at how fears influences really the sensory precision and the, the signal of our sensory system, that is only recently uh, uh, gaining more and more uh, insights. And I think that provides, opens up new new tools. Like, for instance, there is a lot of research that seems to suggest that learning to associate stimuli or cues uh, with, with aversive outcomes, it impairs our ability to discriminate between those stimuli and other stimuli. And so that like opened up this entire idea of maybe perceptual discrimination and then especially your ability to discriminate between bodily sensations might be very relevant. And actually there is quite of a, already a lot of uh, indirect clinical evidence alluding to this idea. And if this is really true, that provides again new tools to clinicians because then you could for instance combine an exposure therapy or a cognitive behavioral therapy where you're trying to work on these wrong expectations with some kind of 
a bodily discrimination task where people can start training to better perceiving their own body and this might influence their pain perception yes so, oh wow so so that 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 will be exposure therapy 2.0 i guess what, yeah adding and including the 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 notion of perception um uh, just a just a question on 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 expectations mm -hmm. whereas um with many of our listeners will probably think oh is this this is probably not just a, a this is probably not just an expectation that is conscious there could also be an implicit let's say uh threatening uh, yeah 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 definitely non-consciousness so could you yeah. so w w how is this field uh capturing these let's say non-specific <laughs> uh or a non-conscious um um add-ons for for uh yeah yeah probably expectations that may yeah. be part, important, important i think people. there's several ways on, on on how to scrutinize these things but i need i think it's very important that to point out that like this this inferential process that occurs in the brain that brain that combines um input with expectations it happens at multiple stages of sensory processing and so you don't indeed it it doesn't relate to what we uh, per se constantly are aware and what we expect so that's very important this is something that you mm. not always have a lot of control over although you might gain or try to overcome these wrong more unconscious subtle biases but it, it's important that indeed it's not that it's just like it's people's fault that they feel pain because they just constantly expect pain. So it's it's much more subtle and much more complex. And I think a good argument why that to show that, that this, like you see a lot of often dissociations between if you look at the brain and which activations, and you often see then like uh, um, activations at brain regions that related to more like uh, predictions, expectations, but that is do not necessarily always correlate with uh, the expectations that people are capable of verbalizing. The same with 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 fear learning. Um, it's not per se that you you the, the things you're consciously aware of that that is actually the things that really happen. For instance, we did a study where we not only wanted to investigate like what happens if people start learning that certain cues or or stimuli or actions lead to certain pain probabilities, and actually these probabilities change over time. And what you see is that actually when they start improving, that people very much struggle to pick up these improvements. And so that only by pointing to people out, like saying like, actually you are improving, the, the pain has been decreasing. And only by really adding these instructions to actual really learning experiences, you saw that people started indeed, first of all, noticing these things, but that is also in, translated to a really a bias in their perceptual system. Um, mm. so that you really saw that they're like they're how they decided upon is a stimulus painful or not that is led to bias that is not per se consciously but it does relate in that case to to what they reported so um probably i, I reckon that, that within the field of psychology um treatment of anxiety is seems to be always a couple steps ahead in the field of conditioning and exposure therapy as the origin obviously sits with anxiety and treating people with anxiety um, disorders so what what is what can the pain world learn from the anxiety 
treatment world, um, as I would assume that is, there's a lot of overflow. Um, um, and, and where it seems to that heading. And, and could, could you sort of give an example of how um, treatment of anxiety or treatment of pain looks like when you take on board this idea of violation of expectation uh, and um, exposure therapy? Yeah. So I think that the, the consequence of, of combining these these pr approaches is that you, you end up with a multidisciplinary treatment protocol. So I think, uh, and that is, I think is, 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 is kind of well accepted, the idea that pain given being such a multidimensional aspect, and there are so many processes involved, that, that it's no longer sufficient to treat pain with, with some medication. I think it's, it's very good that if you could, um, that you like, eh, what you often see is that in these pain centers, they comprise of, on the one hand, you have like a movement sciences, uh, uh, kines, who like start working on, 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 uh, like, yeah, muscles and, 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 uh, yeah, strengthening of the muscles and, and initiating movement. But on the other hand, you, you often have them psychologists who, who, depending on, on their background approach it differently. But I think on the one part, an important aspect of psychologists is like education just explaining to people that it, it's not in their head it's it's that it's like explaining them about their the latest uh research and 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 how we think pain works and 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 being aware of this might already be very uh helpful i think it's it's an important first step uh i think for the focus on these wrong expectations eh? um focusing there uh, using like cognitive behavioral therapy where you actually really challenge these then we're now talking about these explicit expectations for instance the idea of like let's say i i uh, got afraid of um whenever i go walking i i have problems with my hip afterwards so i start avoiding going out or seeing friends because there might be some walking and then actually really starting to challenge these ideas um that's that's one way I think the other way is then also by combining that with really exposing people to it. Um, and that has been very successful in, in a range of different uh, disorders. And I think the the nice thing is it doesn't uh, necessarily always require like uh, individual or face-to-face -face treatments. For instance, in the context of functional gastrointestinal pain uh, syndromes, there are people uh, in, in uh, I think, Norwegian or, or Sweden, uh, Brian Lotsen, who developed these like fear exposure therapies online. So that is by challenging people to eat, for instance, foods that they would else avoid because they would feel like they would be afraid that if I eat this food, my symptoms would get worse. Or like uh, I will not do these activities because if I do these activities, I might feel more bowel movement and I start avoiding them. And by actually both educating and, and, and challenging them to, to engage in those activities, actually people, you provide people with also new learning opportunities. That is, they learn that actually these initial expectations that they ha had were wrong. And so you provide them an opportunity to adjust these fear expectations. And as a consequence, you kind of start working on these fears, but at the same time, you're working on expectations. Mm. So, so um, this will be a very clinical question, and um, that will, how much time or how many repetitions of these 
let's say, positive experience do you need to to make a definite change? And um, is there any science or experience there that tells you when did I you think, give it up? Yeah. I think that's the million dollar question. Um, given that I am, again, I, I have, I'm not a clinical psychologist as as uh, as a background, so I, I I can only speak from my limited uh, understanding of of that mm. literature. But I think that is very challenging because it it's you 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 are when when people arrive to you at a clinic or at your or uh, practice or whatever, they have huge diverse backgrounds. You might have people who are are only recently in pain who have been already years in pain. So the amount of learning and expectations and things that that kind of settled and set in stone in their brain on how their brain process and things um yeah um is so stayed uh, like difficult to change that you might need much more time for certain people than for others it also depends on how well are people motivated engaged are really trying and i think so i i don't think there is a like a fixed number uh like I think most exposure therapies are about six to twelve weeks, uh, with depending on on the like yeah, depending on the protocol, once or twice weekly sessions. Um, but that is it's that's also something something that is getting cl uh, clearer and clearer by the day. That is, despite the effectiveness of exposure, it's it's not a one treatment fits all uh, therapy. Um, and so there is a lot of, uh, first of all, people who just drop out of exposure. It's also, there's a lot of people where exposure doesn't really help. And then you have also the people where actually exposure initially leads to a reduction in fears and maybe maybe pain complaints, but that you often see kind of a, a, a phenomenon called uh, renewal or like, that is that their fears after a while renew. And that is because of many aspects. Um, but I think all of this, Things combined show that that there is much more of a need to develop like individually tailored therapies, and and that actually we we need many more tools, and that as a as a clinician you can like select and adapt your tools to to the person and and see like okay this is working better let's do this a bit more than this, uh, in in that way I think. Mm. Yeah, so if I'm understanding correctly, that there is this unknown of how exposure therapy will work for everyone, yeah, or even on a single case, you might have different have different outcomes. Education is is a, is a big part, big chunk of of the understanding, and then the violation of expectation by doing running these experiments and trying to get people in a safe zone, if you like, and they're not sort of that they. Their, their, their cope coping skills will more like exposing themselves uh, mm -hmm. towards their fear or even their pain, which could be described as pain. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, I think it, it it seems to me that that in in the research and the and let's say the more effective approaches that do have this biopsychosocial approach that that you can see this exposure therapy has been has been delivered by physiotherapists, for example, or OTs who actually bring people to that situation. They bring them back to, to what they fear or what they dislike mm -hmm. and using behavioral therapeutic approaches, which seem to be quite powerful, um, as mm -hmm. the, the research suggested. 
uh, a paper by Kent et al. And also um, um, James McCauley uh, in Australia has, has presented a trial where they do get this, this idea of a conceptual change where people mm -hmm. do less fearing what they thought and then trying doing it and feeling mm -hmm. it and making themselves. So it's really interesting how these worlds worlds seem to merge, right? And yeah, yeah. where I see psychologists starting to touch people <laughs> and a physiotherapist starting to, let's say, being aware of the, the cognitive and psychologically, in, being psychologically informed, uh, yeah. which, is, which is a big benefit, I guess. Indeed, and I think indeed, I think there is a lot more cross-pollination possible because I think indeed, actually, if you think of often how do a lot of psychological uh, problems manifest themselves, it's often like, for instance, in the case of uh, a lot of stress, it, the, like the first often triggers of a lot of stress is like you have muscle soreness, you have muscle cramps, and then what, what people go is they don't go to a psychologist, in, in first, they go to a physiotherapist to, to help work on that, but actually the, the, the underlying cause is psychology. So I think it's very good that that those fields communicate and, 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 and work together and, and that indeed like, uh, yeah, that yeah, there's yeah. a lot of synergies. Oh, totally. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So this is why it all makes sense. And I think that's why it's so worthwhile to to sort of re, uh, re, refuel <laughs> everyone's ideas about uh, conditioning and pain perception and bodily mm -hmm. experiences, because I think that's so relevant in the day-to-day -day clinic to understand or trying to understand at least how these mechanisms could be relevant and uh, play a role in, in patient treatment and uh, outcomes as well. Mm -hmm. um so yeah as we the, the time flies uh Jonas, so we we already uh spent half an hour which is great and um just for everyone let's say your colleague uh, Anne Mulders uh professor in uh, Maastricht uh, university um used to be part of the same university health psychology uh where you working um she's going to deliver a session uh in March which we will announce by then and we'll have the same topic which we do with even a deeper dive, I guess. Uh, yeah, uh, which would be would be great. Uh, as it, in my in my view, it does having the basic science and together with the clinical science needs to work together uh, as well as with patients mm -hmm. and their experiences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's great to see that field moves forward. Um, so if people want to read your work, uh, Jonas, where should they go? Is there a place where you you collected your um your work so we can learn yeah i think if they just google my name um in like in google scholar i think you you, you find an, a nice overview of all my uh my my recent uh of all my uh work but also yeah if you just google my name you will get to my university account and there you can find also everything uh, uh all the information um great so um yeah i think we'll do that for sure okay thank yeah. you for having me yeah, thank you, Jonas. This was um, great to have these, like this introduction, but also refreshing and some new nitty gritty on pain conditioning and treatment, and also on the basic science. Uh, where I know you, your work has been very much on that field of the basic science. So I appreciate you've been doing this translation now, because okay. I know that's always <laughs> a bit of an effort, um, uh, especially from the basic science. But I, I love this cross work and the cross cross links that you brought. So uh, much appreciated. So, thank you. Um, thank you. Um, and to our listeners, thank you for listening.
this was another episode. Um, we'll be back in two weeks. Um, hope you enjoy this and take care.